0: Good morning, and welcome to episode 531 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the baseballreference.com play index. I am Ben Lindbergh of grantland.com, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hi. How are you? Okay. I apologize to everyone for fumbling on yesterday's show. That was a football analogy. I was traveling and was awake too long and overslept. Missed my podcast date.
1: Uh, we forgot to mention uh, Comeback Player of the Year candidates, Willie Mopena, and perhaps <laughs> Vladimir Ballantine.
0: Yeah, I don't know whether I would say that we forgot to, but we did neglect to. Uh-huh. Uh, some people mentioned some good ones that we didn't talk about. Who? Yeah. Uh, David Wright was one that was yeah. mentioned. It's a decent one. And Joey Votto.
1: Yep, those are good ones. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm somewhat distracted by a play index unrelated to
0: this show. Uh-huh. Ryan Webb finished a game on Monday. His let's say his 87th career game finished without a save. We were notified by a few different people. One listener, Steve Wolkind, was in attendance at the game and was taking pictures of Ryan Webb's entrance and posting them to the Facebook group. At Facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild he said it was the highlight of the game we got an email from listener Kevin Whitaker, who pointed out I will quote he says from a quick scan of his baseball reference game logs this is the first game that Webb has finished after entering with a four run lead so the closest he has come to a save at least of the one inning variety to date I don't know whether if it's if it's not a save situation I think they are they are they all created equal or does the fact that he got a four-run save or a four-run finish make him any more likely to get a save in the future?
1: Uh, it seems significant. Four is almost... I mean, you know... It's almost three. The, you see setup guys get that four-run ninth a lot. Yeah,
0: even occasionally a closer to get get work in or something if he hasn't pitched in a while.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, so it feels significant. It's interesting that he's never had a, a game that close. I mean, mm-hmm. that, I guess that goes to the point, right, is that... He's never had a game that close because it's too close to a save. We know one thing about Ryan Webb, and it's that he will pitch any time except for when there's a save. And so presumably, the closer to the save, the less likely he would be mm-hmm. um, to, uh, uh, to to be in there. And uh, so I think the very fact that he's never been in that situation suggests that it is closer to a save that many, probably many managers have chosen specifically to avoid Ryan Webb. So. I, I it does make me worry that there would be, I mean that to me is pretty close. We're one accounting error away <laughs> from him having a save. Like if they just like if the scorekeeper at the end of the game was like double checking his math and realized, oh oh no, it was a three run lead.
0: <laughs> that could happen.
1: He'd have a save right now.
0: Yeah, all the time I mean, I'm if, reading if, about if guys who actually had one more RBI. Exactly. Than... <laughs>
1: 150 years from now, some saber researcher is going to dig up Ryan Webb's save.
0: <laughs> so yes. that
1: makes me nervous. I'd like to have a, a wide margin.
0: Mm-hmm. Alright. Anything else?
1: Um I forget. I I'm just looking at the play index stuff. <laughs>
0: You're just captivated.
1: I'm I am. I'm so I'm I just uh I'm trying to figure out which season in history is most is the most Yaziel Yaziel Puig of
0: 2014.
1: Uh-huh. You know, like who's Who is he most like? Because I wanted it to be somebody like it's almost Junior Spivey. And wouldn't that be great? Like, you just don't think of him being like Junior Spivey at all. Um, And it's almost Joe Maurer. Like, don't Mm -hmm. you think of Puig as being the exact opposite of Joe Maurer?
0: Yes. Uh huh.
1: I mean, they're almost like if you were graphing players based on their, you know, fundamentalness or whatever. Um, they would be on different, different sides of the, the graph. You know, one would be upper left and the other would be bottom right. And um, and yet he is almost having Joe Mauer season. Um, Joe Mauer's age 20, you could say age 22 or age 23 season, really. Um, but Maurer had this huge batting average at the time because he never struck out. And Puig does strike out. And I think that invalidates it. Otherwise, it's pretty close. OPS plus and the uh, walk rate and the the power and the speed are dead on thirteen and eight for each. Uh, I mean they're just totally dead on. It's it's very close. It's like a ninety eight similarity score or something. But it's just not close enough. And I unfortunately I kept on looking and looking and looking. This is not for the podcast. I mean mm-hmm. we're on the podcast, but this is if anybody's thinking this is the play index segment, it's not. <laughs> um, I unfortunately I just refused to take yes for an answer, and I kept on looking for a better one and i found it and it's not a particularly compelling answer it's it's will clark in 1992 it's <laughs> like what are you gonna draw what are you gonna draw from will clark in 1992 like it's not totally hysterical no it's not it's not intuitive not counterintuitive it's just a guy who had a season that's mm. like this one
0: sorry about that
1: they're they are very similar but I mean, what nobody even knows. Nobody even remembers what Will Clark was in 1992. Was he? Was was that when he was still the best player in baseball, or was it when he was in his uh, decline phase where he had no power? Nobody knows. Hmm. The Answer is that he was right in the middle. That was basically his. Uh, well, not really. The year after, I guess, was
0: anyway. Mm-hmm.
1: Boring. Huh. Too bad.
0: Gonna write about it anyway.
1: No. Oh, w- wow. Wasn't
0: gonna write about it. Wasn't gonna oh. write about it even if it <laughs> an hour. <laughs> Pure curiosity.
1: Well, Ben, I had I had to kill time while waiting for you to play <laughs> again today.
0: Oh, Ouch. Um, uh, there was another piece of Play Index research from a listener named Ross, and this was six days ago. So uh, it's maybe it's not really out of date, but it uh, there have been subsequent developments. But it was an interesting piece of research. So Ross wrote. The terribleness of the Brewers the past week or so made me wonder if any teams have had a stretch this bad, 0-8 with at least a negative 38 run differential, which I called close enough to the current mid-game negative 40, and still made the playoffs. So I went to the play index and used the coupon code BP to get it for the discounted price of $30. I then went to the Team Streaks Analyzer and set the games in streak to 8, Sorted by run differential. Unfortunately, I had to go year by year So I went back to 1995 Combination of the 94 canceled playoffs and this being the first year that Ross remembers This is what he found only three teams. So the 2008 Dodgers in August won 84 games uh, Ultimately won 84 games for for a stretch in August. They had a Streak an 0 eight streak with a run differential that bad. So they went on to win 84 games and win a terrible division The 2006 Cardinals, that won 83 games and won a a terrible division. And the 2003 Minnesota Twins, a team that won 90 games but outperformed their Pythagorean record by five games. Only three teams, two won fewer than 85 games, and the other played like an 85-win team. Now I am sad. And as I told Russ, the play index doesn't guarantee that you will be happy at the end of your query. But it will answer your question, and you just have to make it a question that, that doesn't make you depressed at the end of it. And so uh, that, that was six days ago, and, and maybe that was telling. The Brewers are now six games out in the Central and 1.5 games out in the wildcard as we record this. So not a lot of precedent for a stretch as bad as the Brewers had been on and still making the playoffs. And another update on something that we talk about fairly often, the pace of game stuff. Jack D'Alessio wrote something on Sports & Earth about the Atlantic League's experiment with time of game. We talked about that before. And to refresh, uh, teams were limited to three 45-second timeouts each in a nine-inning game. And a timeout was defined as a mound visit from a manager, a coach, or a catcher, or an infield that doesn't result in a pitching change. Umpires were directed to be more diligent in enforcing the rule that restricts batters from stepping out of the box, as well as the 12-second rule. Umpires were encouraged to keep the game moving in a timely manner, and were reminded to stick to the strike zone as defined by the rules, which is larger than what was traditionally enforced. Pitchers were limited to six warm-up pitches at the beginning of an inning, or when they enter the game if it's in the middle of an inning. They'd been allowed eight before. And that was it, so nothing nothing too crazy, nothing too experimental. And from this, the results have been that the league has reduced the time of game by nine minutes so far.
1: Yeah. So I, w- when I was reading that, and it, the the line before nine minutes is so far it's working, <laughs>
0: right. right?
1: And then and um and then it said nine minutes, and so then I I I spent some time wondering whether nine minutes matters. Does not? Do you think nine minutes is
0: noticeable to the average fan? I. Th- Think so, but barely I I don't know if all of that nine minutes is Guys stepping out of the box or standing on the mound then over the course of a season if you're a if you're an Atlantic League Regular devotee and you're watching every single day. Maybe maybe I'd notice a little bit. I don't know. It's not huge So what if they
1: just started every every inning with a runner on first? Uh, That would be exciting right? I mean (laughs) isn't baseball really particularly boring when there's no runner on? I mean, on the one hand you could say when there's a runner on first, the pace of game slows down more because the guy's got to, you know, check him a lot. But, um, it sort of feels like having base runners makes the, the, it creates at least a sort of a progression toward action, toward scoring. Um, and, uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I again, it just goes to the pace versus, versus time factor. Nine minutes doesn't seem like enough that you're really going to notice it in your life. Mm-hmm. Particularly, you're not gonna you're not gonna be like um, you know able to take that vacation you finally you know that you've always wanted because now you have extra time in your life. Um, but uh, it, you know it speeds up the pace of the game. But then what if I mean maybe instead of the pace, maybe you just need to make more situations interesting so mm-hmm. like my idea of having my terrible idea I should know my terrible idea of having home runs count for more when you're losing so mm-hmm. that, that uh, the game always feels closer and the team that's behind always feels like they're more in it would do that that's the idea behind that and um, so yeah having a runner start on base every inning would do that too probably mm-hmm. the problem is that then. well no there isn't that is isn't a problem so uh, yeah would you start him on first, second, or third? If you started him on third, then you wouldn't have the uh, pitcher uh, holding him on problem.
0: That's true. But
1: it it kind of would be fun if there was always a runner on third. Yeah. And if you drive in the runner on third, new guy on third. <laughs> immediately replaced by a new guy on <laughs> third.
0: Um, yeah, that would that would raise the stakes. Yeah. All right, so this is the listener email show. you wouldn't know it so far. We have some emails picked out here. I will read some of them now. Let's start with Steve, uh, the same listener who had the pleasure of seeing Ryan Webb on Monday. He says, okay, so this probably isn't a very interesting question for the show. Always a good start of a listener email show.
1: Often often, often a completely inaccurate.
0: Yeah. True. We get a lot of a lot of questions from people who think that the question is fascinating that doesn't really appeal to us, but sometimes the exact opposite of true So is true. So Steve says, for someone who has the required data analytics skills and the interest to do so, how hard is it to get a job with a team? Are there armies of econometrics PhDs lining up to do this? Or would someone like me, software engineer, know SQL inside and out, has used R professionally, understands statistics, can set up databases and systems, etc. have a reasonable shot of getting a job like this. Lastly, how crazy would I be to choose to leave a good-paying engineering job to do this kind of work even if it were possible? Is this a situation of crushing workload for low pay because folks are in it for the love of it, or would it compare favorably, at least not, or at least not amazingly unfavorably? So my understanding is the the pay will not be comparable, at least compared to the the top of the scale that you could probably get somewhere. Um, and I don't know whether it's a crushing workload for low pay. It, maybe it varies to some extent by team, but but yes, probably compared to what you could do somewhere else, there will probably be longer hours and lower pay. And it's uh, it's a case where you have to weigh your, your interest in the subject matter, I guess. And maybe if you're a numbers person, maybe numbers are all the same. Maybe it doesn't, doesn't matter what you're querying. It's all just the same sort of construction and you're pulling stuff from relational databases and, and maybe that the queries are the same either way. But just the knowledge that one is baseball and one is not and one is helping a baseball team win games and one is not is enough for you to settle for for low pay i don't know i don't know how competitive it is compared to say a high paying desirable job in the tech world it seems it seems competitive to me but if someone who was highly qualified for a job that would pay many times more per year were to apply for a baseball job uh just out of love of the game i bet you'd be a a pretty strong candidate for that
1: why did you want to work for a team back when you used to want to work for a team well
0: I was an English major so it wasn't like I had some lofty salary expectations waiting for me after college so that wasn't even necessarily a, a consideration um, but but the same reasons that that anyone does to get to feel like you are contributing to a baseball team and you get to work on stuff that interests you all day, which, as it turned out, I was able to, to do anyway from writing about baseball, but um, but same sort of reasons.
1: Yeah, I think that I, um, I would be less interested in it being about baseball and more interested in it being about uh, something you could root for. Something that you get to wear the team's shirt and watch them and have there be daily stakes. I think one of the one of the things that's hard about work is that the stakes are often um, that well they it matters for people who are not you. You're doing the work, but you're not part of a team exactly. Um, there's you know a sort of an individualism uh, to your own career and the profits go generally to somebody else, and so that's frustrating. But with baseball. Uh, you have a team. You have the, all the experience of being a fan of a team, which we all love. Like That's what we're into. Um, we all choose it, and we devote ourselves wholeheartedly to it. And so then you just amplify that by like a million, because you're actually uh, literally part of that team. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing. And then the other is just that everybody would be interested in your job, and um, people like having jobs that are interesting to other
0: people. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you hear you hear some baseball people say that that they try not to mention that they work in baseball or that they dread bringing it up because if you mention that you work for a baseball team at at some social gathering then automatically there are people there who are interested in what you do and they will pepper you with questions about that and maybe for some people that that gets old after a certain amount of time but I imagine that they still on some level enjoy the fact that people would have those questions even if they don't necessarily want to hear them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Steve also asks if I'm starting to try to do interesting baseball research on my own, what resource is there for me to get a good understanding of the current consensus views on topics or the best work so far on a topic to jump off from? It doesn't make sense for me to go out and do my own clutches, real research when it's already been sliced and diced to hell. Is there an easy way of doing a literature search to understand what ground has already been covered and there are some ways. And as Steve alludes to later in his email, we we had Matt Denowitz from the Sabre archive on episode 469 and we talked to him about his efforts to categorize baseball research and make it all available, easy to find. But even, uh, just just searching at various sites is a decent way to do it. Steve says that he doesn't have time to go back and read 15 years of Baseball Prospectus, but presumably he has time to go to Baseball res- Prospectus and, and type something into the search bar and look through the article archives. And, and uh, hopefully whatever search term he puts in that's relevant to whatever topic he wants to research would turn up an article. You can also just Google things And you can ask on Twitter, possibly, if you want to canvass people. But but just Googling, just looking at the major sites and searching is not a terrible way to do it.
1: I wonder if it would be even better for him to just not get the current consensus views on topics and to just (laughs) Uh start from scratch and build his own consensus views. Maybe. Or not consensus views, his own views, and see where they line up. See, I'd be interested to I mean, I actually this probably wouldn't be good for him, but wouldn't it be a fun project to find somebody smart who has some interest in sport and just, you know, like put him in a room and say, "We, you know, we want to read your work for the next year, but we're not going to show you anything that anybody else has ever done." Mm-hmm. And just see where it goes. Like wouldn't that be a bizarre and strange experiment that could be amazing?
0: Yeah, I'd like that a lot. Yeah, if you could if you could somehow wipe the the mental database of someone like Rob Arthur for instance who yeah. we had on the podcast recently and and he retained all his skills and his interest in baseball but not his his pretty complete knowledge of the baseball research that's been done and then he could just cover old ground might be good for for the community as a whole to have him go over everything that's been done and revalidate it or find mistakes or come up with new New angles to cover. At the same time, what he's doing now is probably even better. Just having him push research into new areas. So, so yeah, it'd be nice. Okay. All right. So this question comes from Scott. When will we see the first comeback player of the year awarded on the strength of defensive statistics? That would have to be a post-statcast, post-public availability of statcast stats development right if uh, as you as you mentioned in your I, chat you know, at pp this week
1: i think that, it'll I, I don't think it, i think it will be never i just don't think that the average fan in any sport cares as much about defense as offense and a uh, comeback player of the year is a uh it's it is it's like a, it's a fun sport it's a fun fun award it's a it's a uh it's a trinket it's not a real analysis award and so it you know it has as much as anything to do with the way players are perceived um, as any kind of rigorous analysis. And so I think it will always reflect the uh, the very popular uh, um, narratives around players. And I think those in baseball, as in most sports, are always going to be driven more by offense than defense.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be. But you never know. As you mentioned in your chat at BP this week, it could turn out that, that we need a very small sample to... Tell certain things about players' defense once the test is out, if it ever is. And yeah.
1: Do you want to answer that question that I got on the chat? What do you, What is your answer to that? The question was how long, how much, how much Statcast data, or how many years of Statcast data is that? What it was mm-hmm. will be needed to have uh, reliable defensive metrics for players. Yeah. And so my answer was that it uh, that you can't answer it because until we have Statcast data and we start plugging in the reliability of you know, and start, until we start actually testing the reliability of certain things, uh, we can't say what it'll be, right? You have, to, you have to have some access to the data before you're able to assess how good the data is. Um, however, I think once we have a handle on the data, it, I don't know the answer, right? I, mm-hmm. Clearly, I just said I don't know the answer. But it wouldn't surprise me if it was something extraordinarily short, like mm-hmm. a couple of weeks, and you can get 90, you know, 95% confidence on a player's defense.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I think I agree with that because the things that the things that stabilize most quickly now are things that are just entirely dependent on one player, mostly dependent on one player like swing rate is something that stabilizes quickly because a, a hitter can just decide whether he wants to swing or not. It's not dependent on you know, it's maybe slightly dependent on the mix of pitches he sees, you know, if he's facing a control pitcher or, or someone who throws a lot of pitches out of the zone. But for the most part, it's kind of an inherent thing. Some guys swing a lot and some guys don't. And there's nothing preventing them from doing that. And so that stabilizes quickly. And the same thing is true or would seem to be true with certain things on defense. Like, I mean, arm strength is something that a scout would put a grade on. In one throw maybe in some cases and so you can't do that with with the current statistics that we have about outfield arms where you're just looking at the rates of Runners advancing over a long period, but if you have The velocity of the throw and the angle of the throw and everything then then you you know pretty much right away if that guy has arm strength and then arm accuracy might take a little bit longer but not that much longer, and things like a a first step or a break, that's something that you would think would be really quick. If you you could tell if a ball is hit in someone's vicinity, how how quickly does he start moving toward it? That seems like something that you'd be able to tell almost immediately. Maybe maybe one day he was zoning out a little bit, and so that wouldn't be a great reflection. But on the whole, you'd think that would be a a pretty consistent skill. So. Yeah, it seems to me that 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 is the thing. As as I've speculated before, I, I would be surprised if it completely turns our understanding of who's good at certain things on its head. And the main benefit seems like we'll it'll just tell us the same things much more quickly and with more confidence. So I'm with you.
1: Yeah. I mean there's a uh, there is a sort of alchemy in hitting that you can't necessarily measure like like as you noted we can tell a batter's strike a uh, swing rate uh, tendencies very quickly and his control of the strike zone very quickly and his speed uh to first very quickly but there's there's this sort of magic that's that happens that um in between those that um kind of creates enough noise that we can't really say in 50 at-bats whether he's a good hitter the same the way that we can say within 50 at-bats what his you know, swing rate tendencies are. But with fielding, like 98% of it is just getting to the ball, right? Mm-hmm. And there isn't really the same magic to fielding. If you can get to the ball, you'll probably catch it. Um, and so I feel like being able to uh, very quickly and precisely measure all of these components of defense... Uh, will probably be
0: pretty conclusive pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, one more quick one before play index. This is from Michael. The subject line is sort of a terrible pun. I don't know how you feel about this. What is it? Pondering Adam's Hall of Fame resume when he's done. Um, skip it. <laughs> Michael asks, Sam and Ben, Adam Dunn currently has 462 Wait, clear. Wait,
1: you're not skipping, I, it. I, I'm I not skipping skip it. it.
0: I'm not I skipping it. skip it. I said skip. We only have so many good questions. I can't afford to skip
1: it. You can, I'll pick another one. We're skipping that one. I refuse to answer it. Oh. it just, email does not call for a pun.
0: <laughs> Fine. I'll answer it privately.
1: Oh, that's good. <laughs> uh, let's see. How about... Um, Uh, let's try Adam, okay? Okay. Uh, this is also a quick one. Why must every time a pitch hits the dirt or is caught by the catcher in the dirt, does the umpire change the ball? And if the pitch glancing the dirt corrupts the ball, why aren't ground balls, many of which also hit the dirt before being fielded, also replaced, or at least inspected by the umpire? Why are they? It does seem like they are just way, 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 way too quick to take
0: a ball out of play. It does. I mean, if the... If the upside is that you make it harder to cheat and you make things safer, I mean, if it's – I maybe you do it when there's any kind of scuff on the ball because if you're making a judgment call every time, then – well, then you have to make a judgment call every time. Then you have to decide whether the ball is too scuffed up, to make it clear whether someone is is doing something to it or or that it's less visible and therefore dangerous and maybe you you just take it out of play right away to simplify things and it's not like Major League Baseball can't afford baseballs and those baseballs end up doing some good in some other way presumably right they turn into batting practice balls or they get thrown to a fan or they serve some other sort of good and so why wouldn't you in a sport that has record revenues, why wouldn't you always want a pristine baseball in play? But then again, he makes a good point in in that if you're going to do that every time a ball hits the dirt, then maybe you would do it every time there's a grounder when the ball is traveling almost as fast.
1: Well, I assume that they. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, I I always assume that if that they do anytime the ball hits the dirt. I mean that's the rule, right? If it hits the dirt, it goes out of play. So I assumed that there were a lot of ground balls that were followed by the ball being tossed out of play. Mm. Jason and I were just talking about this. In fact, we were... Let me ask you this, Ben. Okay. We were talking about um, Paul Molitor, who uh, Jean Rogel... Rogel?
0: I think so. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Uh, Recently noted was the uh, only player in the Hall of Fame who's had Tommy John surgery. And that is a great fun fact, because uh, Paul Molitor is obviously not a pitcher. But not only is he not a pitcher... He has probably, in my estimation, he has probably thrown fewer baseballs than any Hall of Famer in the Hall of Fame, right? There's probably no player in the Hall of Fame has thrown fewer baseballs during game action than Paul Molitor, right? Sure. Don't you think
0: that's probably true? Sounds reasonable.
1: And so then we started wondering, okay, is that really true? And so we had to decide which throws we're going to count. So the first baseman, for instance, doesn't throw a lot of balls in plays, right. but he does throw every time he catches the ball, he has to throw it to another player. And so we were going to count that.
0: I mean, when he, when he was playing in the field, he was playing third base and second base and even a little bit of shortstop. So maybe if you're, right, if you're counting competitive throws as opposed to just throwing the ball in, then maybe during those years when he was playing the field, he was making more throws than, say, a left fielder does.
1: Uh, Yeah, but although a left fielder, every time there's a base hit to the outfield, that's a throw. True, So not assists. I'm not saying he's made fewer assists, Mm -hmm. and that's the distinction, is that he has probably made more assists than a typical first baseman and probably, I mean, certainly a typical left fielder, but every time the ball goes to the outfield, which happens an awful lot, uh, an outfielder throws the ball in, and um, and a first baseman every time there's a pickoff throw, for instance, he's got to throw the ball back to the pitcher. And so there are a lot of throws. So I was gonna, I was thinking about settling down for a big counting project. Haven't done it yet. Uh, but in the meantime, we were trying to decide what counts as a throw. And so the first baseman gets the ball um, after a grounder, after the ball is thrown to him. And Jason hi- hypothesized that he throws the ball out. That he might throw the ball out, but we don't. I've never seen the first baseman toss the ball out of play, but does he? Does any? Do you know? Like when a ball hits uh, the infield dirt and the fielder fields it, throws it to first, first baseman catches it, out is made. What happens is the first baseman toss the ball out of play because it's been scuffed. Does mm. the pitcher toss it out of play after time has been called because it's been scuffed, or does the ball just stay in the game and they keep pitching it?
0: I don't know. You'll see if a first baseman. Toss the ball into the stands if it's the last out of the inning, and he's walking back. But and otherwise, I've, yeah, yeah. I,
1: I've heard. I remember a broadcaster. Um, I remember a broadcaster chiding a first baseman one time, chastising a first baseman one time because he had taken the ball out of play. Like the it was like a short hop or something on a pickoff throw or something like that, and he, yeah. What about on a pickoff throw? When there's a short hop on a pickoff throw, do they toss the ball out of play? Seems
0: like the pickoff throw always gets returned.
1: Yeah, it does. Anyways, uh, the broad, I, to the point, sometimes broadcasters will, will, uh, will note that a player on the defense has taken the ball out of play on his own accord because it hit the dirt. And the broadcaster will note that that's, uh, a, that's dumb. It's self defeating. The, the defense benefits from having the ball uh, in play for longer. Um, Anyway, that's slightly off topic. Uh, I forget what we were talking about. Molitor? Molitor. But before that, we were saying that, uh, what, there are too many balls taken out of play? Not enough? What's the question?
0: (laughs) Um, Well, it seems to me that there is no number that could be too many, right?
1: They seem to find a way to use all the baseballs. Yeah. You know, it's it's not like the nation's landfills are full of baseballs. I mean, people like to have those, but I, I assume those, most of those baseballs end up being hit out of the park in batting practice, which make people happy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so I guess it doesn't
0: matter. Yeah. okay, I don't Play, know. play index. Sure.
1: Uh, so uh, piggybacking off your September call-ups research from last year, uh, last week. Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered who the best September call-up is of the last, say, 15 years. And huh. so um, I went back to 2000.
0: I think I answered that question, although I didn't speak about it. Oh, really? Yeah, so probably a different method, so we'll see.
1: This is, I guess. Well, um, probably a different method. How many methods? They-
0: <laughs> Maybe not. Well, we'll see what yours, yours says.
1: All right, so I went to the Play Index Split Finder. I searched for everybody in their first season, uh, by September splits. Um, and then I uh, clicked the little button that says, you know, compare to season total or whatever the case, whatever you click. And that way I could see whose uh, September stats were uh, also their full year stats so that I knew that they were September call ups. And then I just sorted them. Um, so for hitters, I did it on um, runs created. Mm-hmm. Um, and who did you get? Uh, you might have gone further back, too.
0: I think. I think, well, I think mine was Warp, possibly, so it was all of, all of play, not just hitting. I went back to 2000, and the most productive September debuts I got at 1.1 Warp each were Niger Morgan for the mm-hmm. 2007 Pirates mm-hmm. and Jasmil Pinto for the 2013 Twins.
1: Interesting. So Morgan by Runs Created was fourth on my mm-hmm. list, and Pinto was sixth on my list um and my number one was Derek barton in uh-huh. 2007 who also was uh, 1.3 war baseball reference war uh, so um so uh, also darn good mm-hmm. uh so uh, other guys uh, jesus montero was was up there ryan zimmerman's up there joey Votto was up there and then guys who aren't good chris parmalee jeff baker um and I did the same for pitchers. You didn't do the same for pitchers, did you? I did not. So for pitchers, the uh, the champion that I got was uh, well, actually, before we go to pitchers, I just wanted to say one thing about Barton. Um, Barton that year hit, uh, let's see, Barton in September hit 3.47, 4.29, 6.39 for a you know one oh six seven OPS in about uh, 84 plate appearances. So, in case you were wondering whether there's anybody who could challenge that uh, this year, the best player currently, uh, who's not close because of playing time uh, to Barton, but is close in terms of uh, rate sets is Corey Spangenberg. Spangenberg? Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> Spangenberg.
1: Spangenberg. <laughs> right.
0: Uh, who's at 353,
1: 389, 706. Uh, in, of course, uh, Pitcher's Era and a Pitcher's Park. So is out-hitting Barton, but only 18 plate appearances. Uh, and Sean O'Malley, I guess, is hitting well, but he's only batted twice. He's, he somehow manages to be second on this list. Actually, in 2014, he is second in runs created by a September call-up uh, in two plate appearances. He's two for two. Uh, <laughs> but, so otherwise, it's nobody's close. Uh, but the thing about Barton is that I remember Barton's September call-up in my memory as being the peak of thinking Billy Bean was a genius, could not fail, was the smartest person who had ever done anything in the game. Um, and I remember this because I, I remember the A's were really good; uh, they were they were battling the Angels, and Barton, who had gotten as like uh, you know part of the Mulder trade, had. Just been so amazing as a minor leaguer, and I know. I mean, he was a catcher too at the time. I still thought he might catch, and he came up and just absolutely hit like like crazy. And uh, upon upon looking further, I realized that my memory has completely made this up. Like Barton did come up, he was impressive. He was gotten in the Mulder trade, but by the time he came up, the A's were not good anymore. Like they were, they won like seventy. Four games that year there was no pennant race they were they were awful um and uh i don't know memory is a weird thing i have you know Mm -hmm. ben i have memories of i have memories of things that happened before my daughter was born in which in my memory my daughter is with me doing them do you ever have that
0: well i don't have a daughter daughter. (laughs) so that'd be weird (laughs) your daughter's everywhere um (laughs) No. Yeah. No. All
1: right. Uh, for pitchers, uh, I've imagined
0: myself at, at things. I remember myself having done things that I didn't do. But, uh-huh. but yes.
1: For pitchers, it's uh, kind of three contenders. Um, James Paxton last year is a contender. Josh Beckett in 2001 is a contender. Uh, I'm going with Dylan G though in 2010, 33 innings, uh, 2.18 ERA, basically a win, a war, a warp. Either way, you go. Uh, but the reason that I went forward with this, and the reason I'm going on and bringing it up, is not because I, you care about Barton or you care about Dylan G, but because I wanted to tell you one thing about September call-up pitchers. So September call-up pitchers, as a group, uh, this group of pitchers who uh, I think I limited it to pitchers who had thrown like uh, I don't know five innings or two innings or I think two in, I think two innings no three innings maybe three innings anyway uh, they as a group have a 4.76 ERA, which isn't notable one way or another. They have a um, you know a losing record, which isn't surprising. But there's one thing about them that is notable as a group. These 274 pitchers who have come up as September call-ups uh, for the first time, there's one thing notable about them, Ben, and that one thing is that they have a balk rate that is triple <laughs> the league average. Triple. Huh. Triple the league average. Wow, that's a massive difference. I mean, we're talking about um, we're talking about three thousand innings that these guys have pitched combined as September call ups. So this is no small group of pitchers pitching in small samples. Three thousand innings and triple the league's walk rate. They are um, they're they're about thirty percent above the league's intentional walk rate. If you were wondering about that don't know why you would be but uh-huh. the box are really something so i think yeah. we can deduce that september call-ups are a nervous bunch
0: yes so maybe. keep
1: them in mind <laughs> this september when you're watching a september call-up this month think keep in mind how nervous they are and watch for the Bock.
0: <laughs> i wonder if that's true think, of all rookies in their first month uh
1: maybe. yeah it might be i would like a uh, watch for the Bock public service announcement
0: yeah, okay. Well, listeners are diligent about looking for things that we talk about. So let's
1: see. I'm going to see if. Uh, please
0: alert any, us of any balks that you noticed this month with any rookies. There
1: have not been any this month. This month, no September call up has balked. In fact, no first year player has balked this month at all. Huh. Call up or not. Hmm. Mm. Maybe
0: teams are, are doing a better job of talking to their call ups and preparing them. For there, the are, experience.
1: there are two current call-ups this month Who have pitched but not recorded an out So keep Dario Alvarez and Kendall Graveman in mind I mm-hmm. always like guys who have Major League pages But no outs mm-hmm. recorded mm-hmm.
0: Okay, good one And uh, I also I piggybacked on your Play Index segment From last week, was it last week? The Giordano the Ventura one About mm-hmm. how he had not allowed a stolen base we're still base attempt, and he still has not, and the Royals happen to be in town this weekend. So I went up there and talked to lots of Royals about that streak and how that streak has happened. And there is an article up about that at Grantland this morning, if you were listening on Wednesday morning. So you can saw, find out more about that.
1: I saw that fun fact on the uh, Yankees broadcast, Ben. Yes. I that's, saw it quite a coincidence that just a couple of days after... After we, we <laughs> talked at length about it, it yeah. was like, on okay. podcast.
0: That was quite a coincidence. Very coincidental. Mm-hmm. Didn't
1: right. see, I didn't hear your name.
0: I did not. I didn't, didn't hear your name. Um, okay, so let's do the traditional post-play index question. This one comes from Chris, who wants to know if the Orioles should tank. Up by 10 games in the AL East, the Orioles' only real playoff-related race for the rest of the season is for the best record in the American League. Main competition is from the AL West teams. Currently, they are four wins behind the Angels and four games ahead of the A's and five games of the Mariners. With these teams playing each other several times and the Orioles' remaining games being against AL East teams that have been or will be soon eliminated from playoff contention, is it not crazy to think that the Orioles could end up with the best record in the AL? I can't believe I just wrote that sentence. However, should they want it? If they get the best record in baseball, there is a good chance that their reward will be playing the winner of an A's Mariners play-in game. Both teams have a higher first, second, and third order winning percentage than the O's. Meanwhile, whichever team finishes with the second best record in the AL will get to play the winner of the AL Central, the Royals, Tigers, or Indians, all of which have lower first, second, or third order winning percentages. So if the Orioles end up with the best record in baseball, their reward could be to play possibly the second-best team in the AL in the ALDS, and if they advance, the best team in baseball in the ALCS. Even if there is not an AL, an all-AL West play-in game, whichever AL West team that does make it will be favored over whichever weak AL Central team makes it. Obviously, I know that the playoffs are a crapshoot and all that, but it seems to me that the Orioles should rest some starters, pitch Ubaldo Jimenez three or four times, try some September call-ups in the bullpen over the last few weeks of the season, Maybe give Ryan Webb a few save opportunities and aim for the second best record in the AL. I'd rather face the AL Central and have one fewer ALCS home game than have that extra home game and face two AL West players' opponents. In baseball, this is a new phenomenon because of the recently expanded playoffs. In other sports, though, losing on purpose for playoff seeding is something that happens regularly. See Australia's basketball team. I have not not seen Australia's (laughs) basketball team, but but I will now. Is it ethical for the Orioles to do this against some unwritten rule? How blatant could the Orioles get?
1: I feel like see Australia's basketball team is
0: like a horse eBooks tweet. (laughs) Right. So is it ethical? Do you have any, do you have any, I guess, I guess it's no, it's no less ethical than, than tanking to get the, the top draft pick, but we've talked about whether that's ethical in the past. I think. And is there any unwritten rule against this I would say I would say no I would say the situation is too rare too too new to have even unwritten rules about it
1: maybe uh, And do you th- do you agree that it's in the Orioles best interest
0: to... um, if the if the scenario that he has laid out here and I haven't checked to, to make sure that all of those matchups are actually what they would be but if this is if this is true then then I I suppose so.
1: I don't. Uh, it's hard. the thing is that if you play the wild card winner, you might have cleared their ace.
0: Maybe. Yeah. Although. It's difficult for the wildcard winner to arrange things such that the ace pitches in the it, in the play-in game.
1: It's difficult, but it's like a 40 to 60% chance that they do. And if you figure both teams do, or if you figure both teams have a 40 to 60% chance of doing it, and even if the, the odds are that one of them will, and then the one that does will then be favored in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, so now with the A's... That's probably not that significant. I don't even know how the A's order, of pitching uh, rotation should be ordered. Like you, those four pitchers, I have no preference for any of them one through four
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, Samarja, Kazmir, Lester, and um, Sonny Gray. I mean, I guess maybe I, I do a little bit, but very little preference. Mm-hmm. Um, and whereas the Mariners, great preference, right? Huge preference, massive preference. So, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, what are the odds that you're going to get the Mariners? What are the odds the Mariners are going to get to line up Felix Hernandez? And what are the odds that clearing him so that he only pitches in game, say, three? If he pitches... so if he pitches one, two, three, yeah, he would he would have to wait till game three, right?
0: Yes. I so, think
1: so so only having to face Felix once instead of twice um, would be significant, but that's not, of course, that's not. Guarantee that it's going to play out that way, but I think that you would take the wild card team. Mm-hmm. I think I don't think that it is in their interest to face the team that has a couple days to rest to set their rotation, um, even if by third order winning percentage they're a slightly inferior team. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll just say that. But is it ethical? It is. Uh, I'd say that it is uh, unethical to once you're on the field to not try your hardest. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: That doesn't mean that you are required to put your best team on the field. You're allowed to make, in my opinion, ethically, you can make roster decisions that uh, have long-term benefits instead of short-term benefits, and that is perfectly fine. However, it is not acceptable once you are on the field, once the game has started, uh, to make decisions that will purposefully uh, pursue a defeat. And it's somewhat, it might be somewhat difficult for those two things to coexist, it might be difficult to prepare for a loss and then fight like hell for the win once you're on the field. So you might argue that uh, it becomes unethical then to even choose the uh, you know the roster construction things. But generally speaking, I think yeah, it's fine to rest your players a lot um, and to uh, you know align your rotation in a way that has the long view and so on and so forth, as long as there's no shenanigans once the play has begun. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and I don't I don't think there's I think the unwritten rule would be that you can't make it too obvious and it basically can't be farcical mm-hmm.
0: all right so You have and to have
1: plausible deniability
0: Lastly a rule change suggestion from Sam another Sam who wants to know what would happen if batters were allowed to tag up on fly balls Oh, so I like that one You hit a fly ball you stand on home plate till the ball is caught and then you take off for first How does that change the game? And Sam mentions that he is drunk on whiskey when he sent huh. us this question.
1: I liked that question. I liked the idea. I've come down against it, though. <laughs> and the reason that I've come down against it is because if you, um, in this in this world, in this universe where this is allowed, um, every good catch would essentially be for naught. Mm, yes. You know, you'd you'd have it would be somewhat difficult because if you're a batter and you hit a ball into the gap, you have to decide whether to tag up or not. And so you might you would have probably no triples because probably any time a ball looked like it was going to be I mean the the value of getting on base is much greater than the value of an extra base. So my guess is any time you hit a fly ball, really any fly ball, you would probably just start you would tag up immediately. And so therefore if a great catch was made you'd still reach base. And if the great catch was missed, you probably would still end up at first base because you were tagging all along. So it would just be like any fly ball—you'd tag. And that the two interesting things that can happen on a fly ball are it splits the gap or there's a great catch, and both of those things would be kind of uh, turned into nothing.
0: Mm-hmm. So if only there were a way to do it so that a, a can of corn was eligible for this, right? Then it would then it would be fun. If you could yeah. do it such that such that a routine throw where the outfielders just camped under it for a while and it's not interesting because ninety nine point nine nine percent of those are caught. Yeah and it would add some intrigue, but but too many too much fallout.
1: Yeah. Good way of
0: okay. summing it up. Good suggestion. All right. So please support our sponsor, the Baseball Reference Play Index, by going to BaseballReference.com, using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. And please join the Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash EffectivelyWild. Send us emails for next week's listener email show at podcast at baseballperspectus.com And rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. And we will be back with another show tomorrow.